right, good morning, everyone. Good to see you, good to see you. Thank you, Earl. I did hear your good morning, so. Uh, great to see you. Uh, good to be in the house of the Lord. A couple of announcements uh, before we get started this morning. Uh, I guess I should welcome everybody. It's good to see you. It really is. And uh, good to be uh, part of the fellowship. Uh, we've got some exciting things to look forward to. Uh, in a couple of weeks, uh, the pastoral candidate will be here, Aaron Smith, with his whole family. So Aaron and Anna and four kids, including, you know, bouncing baby newborn. So uh, it'll be a great time of fellowship with them. And uh, we want to let you know that there are opportunities to get together with them in a smaller group setting so that you can get to know them and, and uh, welcome them to the area. So please check the information center. Um, they're, they're going to be here from uh, like March 20, I'm sorry, February 28th until March, I don't know, 5th? 5th? <laughs> uh, still until March 5th. So uh, there is opportunities to sign up. You can go to the Mason's house on the 28th. You can go to the Toonies on the 29th or the Wolf's House on the, uh, I guess would be the first, because February only has 29 days. Well, you get an extra one. Anyway, look at the Information Center, uh, sign up for one of those times, and uh, enjoy that. And remember, too, that we'll be having a flock group uh, opportunity for question and answers uh, as well. And uh, so we're, we're just looking forward to the Smiths coming. Just be continue to pray. Uh, that the Lord's leading would be clear and uh, that uh, they would travel safely. They are driving this time, so uh, just pray for all those details. We do have uh, several youth this week uh, at the youth retreat in Illinois, and uh, Josiah is down there uh, along with some others uh, to supervise, but uh, they are will be working their way back today from, uh, from that retreat, so you'll be in prayer for that. And uh, remember that this week is Valentine's Day, and what does that mean for us? Well, not a lot, but um, I shouldn't say it that way. But ladies, uh, please remember to check the uh, counter in the back. There may be some gifts from your secret pal. And yeah, husbands, remember to get your wife something on Valentine's Day. That's important. So uh, I think I better sit down for after, for after all that. So Kurt, come and save me from the announcements. Thank you. I don't know if I want to save him or bury him here. Uh, Valentine's doesn't mean very much. Okay, Brad, you're in trouble this week. All right. We're, oh, what a, what a funny thing. All right. Hey, um, this is Valentine's. So my wife is uh, snacked this week. So she made everything kind of red. So it's chocolate covered strawberries. But also, um, they're some of my favorite cookies ever. They're, they're cherry cookies. Um, with uh, Hershey kisses on top. They're amazing. So I'm trying to watch my weight, so please eat them all so that I don't have uh, anything that I, uh, is a temptation today or later. All right, uh, this is uh, Leadership Dedication Day. So after I'm done preaching the sermon, our elders for this year and deacons are going to come up, and I will lead us as a congregation in prayer uh, for God's blessing upon the year. I'd like to put in a plug 
for the ABF Hour. So if you're here and you don't know what ABF stands for, it's Adult Bible Fellowship. So I've been teaching on the book of the Revelation, the last book of the Bible, for a few months now. We are beginning the second half of the book, chapter 12, this week. I have been investing roughly 20 hours a week in studying for the Sunday school hour, the ABF hour. And I mean, I'm, I'm coming every single Sunday loaded for bear. I, I literally have uh, way more than I can ever uh, get through. But you might want to come out. If you haven't been, there have been a good number of people. But if you haven't been and you're interested in uh, end times events and what uh, the scripture says specifically about that, you may want to stick around uh, and hear some more. Now, a lot of people to pray for uh, this week, and I'm going to uh, share briefly about each one of them. It's been a busy week for uh, me especially, just making visits and, and uh, phone calls, texts, and so on. But uh, first, uh, we'll, we'll top the list with uh, Dennis. Uh, Brad and I were able to go down, and there are others of you have gone down, but Brad and I went down on Wednesday and uh, prayed for Dennis. They only allow two in the room at a time, so if you want to go down and visit, make sure that you talk with Jill ahead of time and, and set that up. But uh, something kind of rare has happened, probably due to the chemo. They're working with it, but I'm just going to tell you, brothers and sisters, there's not a it's hard to know exactly what you know the nearer future will hold so please pray for Dennis very uh, fervently this week pray for Kathy uh, Pope so Marie and I went and saw Kathy Pope yesterday uh, it was more serious than I thought okay she has had uh, past tense a blood clot basically from about the lower central part of her uh, abdomen all the way to her foot and it was solid going all the way down okay very rare they didn't even have the part for the surgery in the hospital it had to be brought up from Milwaukee that's how rare this is uh, the doctor thought maybe even since birth this has been this had actually started uh, just because it was so unusual um, could have been very serious. By God's grace, her doctor couldn't have her come in. The doctor was completely packed, so they had to go to the ER. Thank God they did, because had they not, could have been really different. So right, consequently now, um, she actually is probably going to come out of the hospital once she regains her strength in much better shape, uh, having all of this prolonged months, maybe years of clogging uh, taken care of. So she'll probably be better off, but uh, do pray for her recovery. Uh, Ross has been moved from uh, the hospital to Rocky Knoll. Pray for him. Pray especially for his salvation. Um, Melody is doing well. Tiny little thing. Strong little thing. Okay, she, I shouldn't call her a thing, strong little baby girl. Uh, Melody's doing so well. Daniel is driving Katie up almost every day, if not every day, uh, to see her. Uh, so just pray for you know, all, the, all of the things that go into having a new baby with you know, a lot of other children and just uh, getting the, everything coordinated. Uh, thank the Lord for grandmothers, right? Uh, so 
pray for them. And then our teens are at Signs of Life. Do not underestimate the impact that Signs of Life has on the teenagers. Okay, um, We've got a, a couple of chaperones down there as well. But uh, uh, just be praying for all of them. They're having their final sessions. Eric Mock texted me some pictures yesterday. Uh, so you know they're having their final sessions, uh, I think going into the afternoon, and then they drive back. So pray for uh, all of our young people who are there. Our family of the week are the Wolves, Dan and Amy and their kids. Uh, so uh, three things that we can pray for. Number one, uh, pray for their marriage to continually grow stronger and sweeter. Number two, pray for their children to continue to walk with the Lord. And then number three, for Nathan to find a good job after graduation. Very close uh, to being done with high school. Let's just pray that God will guide him. Actually, not high school. Um, he's in LT. Uh, C, right? Yeah, sorry, LTC. All right, and then um, our overseas servants of the week are the Hursts, Cam and Mary. A couple of things to pray for. Number one, uh, they're returned to the States in April, so they've got to come back so that Mary can have ongoing, she's been having surgeries, so she needs another one. They'll be back in April, and they asked, uh, secondly, that God would give them wisdom to decide how soon uh, to retire. They're trying to determine, they know they're going to be coming back fairly soon, but uh, they haven't set a month or not even necessarily a year. So just that God would give them wisdom. They're, they're going to need to hand off some pretty significant responsibilities, and they've been training others to take over. But, you know, when there's a handoff, uh, there, things can sometimes get dropped. So pray for all of that. And finally, our persecuted saints of the week are uh, Zara and her family. So let me uh, read this. It's, it's a bit shocking, and like the, the details are withheld, so that, but I think adults are going to understand. In 2015, Zara, then 19, was abducted and horribly abused for several days by her kidnappers. Her entire Muslim family had become followers of Christ, and some Muslim extremists wanted to punish them. They told her what they were doing was not a sin, but that it was their, their religious obligation because of her conversion to Christianity. After her kidnappers released her, Zara and her family eventually fled to another country, but they continued to struggle. Now she's 27 years old, so this is about eight years, seven and a half years later. Uh, Zara receives trauma therapy, but is still healing from her deep inner wounds. Additionally, her mom is fighting cancer, and her father is battling other health issues. So this family is under a lot of current stress. The costs have caused several of Zara's sisters to drop out of college to work, to get a job, and to try to support their family. So let's be in prayer for Zara, uh, her emotional recovery, her dad and her mom, uh, and then just financial provision for all. Lord, uh, we'll start in prayer first by just thanking you for this church, for what you are doing here, for the amazing, I really believe amazing, body of believers that you've assembled in this place, 
Some of them are uh, at a bit of a distance down in Illinois, quite a few of them actually, uh, more than a dozen I think, uh, that are being ministered to at the Signs of Life retreat. We pray for them. Uh, that in the final sessions, they would uh, hear and obey your word. If any of them is unsaved, then we pray, Lord, that you'll use this weekend to draw them to yourself. We also pray for those who are walking with the Lord, that they will be recharged spiritually and encouraged to uh, greater service and closer fellowship with you. We um, ask for safety too as they return. Next week is, or actually a couple weeks, is a very important time in our church when Aaron and uh, his wife and their children drive here, uh, participate in several days of uh, fellowship and meetings when we can get to know them better and questions asked. Uh, we pray that the entire time will just be a blessing, a blessing for us, a time of encouragement for one another, and especially of uh, Pastor Aaron's family. We pray also that uh, you would clearly guide all uh, of us and uh, them to the final decisions, Lord, just superintend over this time. And uh, we pray for your will to be done and ask that, uh, assuming they are called, that uh, there will be a really wonderful time of transition as my family departs and they arrive. Uh, we pray for Dennis. We know that his life does, at this very moment, hang in the balance. We don't know what the ultimate outcome will be. We do know that the elders have prayed. Uh, we have uh, asked for you to raise him up. We don't know for sure if this is your will, but it is our desire to see him restored to his wife, family, especially for selfishly speaking to our church. Uh, his teaching ability is very high. And we believe he could be greatly used here in an ongoing way. So we pray that you'll bring him back. We think of dear Kathy as she uh, has had this very unusual and um, extreme blood clot in her leg. Uh, thankfully, Lord, you allowed all the circumstances to work so that she went directly to the ER. And this has been remedied now. But um, we pray that she'll fully recover and that her circulation will be even better than it was before. Then we ask for Ross. Even more than his physical health, Lord, we pray for his soul. It's not that we wish for him to die, Lord, but that what happens to his body right now is far less important than what happens to his soul. Father, we directly ask, uh, and, and we, we really just plead for him, because we know where he'll be for eternity if he does not submit to the cross. So we pray that you will draw him. It is your power. It is the spirit. It is ultimately your work. So, Lord, we pray that you'll draw him and that he will uh, bow the knee, as it were, to your son and accept what Jesus has done for him. Save his soul. 
We're thankful that baby Melody is so strong inside of, in, in spite of her size. We pray that she will continue to um, uh, grow and that there won't be any complication, whatever. We think of uh, Katie, Daniel, uh, Teresa, all the kids with all the things they juggle, Lord. Just hold, it, hold the family together. Uh, we think of the uh, teens who will be driving back this evening or afternoon, uh, that they'll have safety. We pray that the messages they've heard, the fellowship that they've experienced, the um, uh, interactions they've had will uh, stick with them. If any is unsaved, we pray that this weekend would be the uh, impetus that would uh, draw them to yourself, uh, that you'd use uh, what they remember from this weekend. And then we pray for uh, the young people who are walking with the Lord, that they will take the next spiritual step uh, this weekend. We pray for the wolves, for uh, Dan and Amy, for their marriage to just continue to grow and become sweeter as the years go on. It's a very wonderful request, and uh, I speak for my own uh, uh, marriage that it, it really is true that you do uh, grow us in our marriage, and so we just pray for that. For their children, too, that they'll walk with the Lord. And for Nathan, as he gets done uh, studying at LTC, that you will guide him to the job. Uh, help, him to, help him to decide exactly what it is that you want him to do, as I know he'll have a lot of options. So, Lord, we pray that you'll guide him. For the Hursts, uh, that as they return in April, that Mary's surgery will be successful, that you'll help them to... As it were, uh, um, hand off. Sometimes it's hard to hand things off. So help them to train and to hand off the responsibilities that they shoulder, both in terms of discipleship and uh, leadership at the seminary, that uh, this will uh, go very smoothly. And then just help them to know exactly when to return to the States and to retire. And then we pray finally for our persecuted saint of the week, Zara, and all of her family as uh, she was brutalized at 19 and eight years later is still struggling from that. Not surprising, very hard. Uh, becoming a, a Christian in a Muslim country normally does bring severe persecution and none more so than this for this dear, uh, uh, not girl, but uh, young lady. We think of her mom going through uh, the trial of cancer, her dad struggling uh, physically, her, her sisters having to drop out of college just so they can make some income and, and earn enough to keep the family afloat. Lord, provide for them, take care of them. There's going to be reward uh, beyond what we can even imagine in the afterlife uh, for each of these to to uh, experience these kinds of trials. Lord, may we learn from them. May we learn uh, faithfulness in spite of deep trouble. Uh, none of us uh, is going through anything that approaches this. And uh, maybe some very difficult times, but not like this. So we pray for them uh, that your grace would be sufficient. Thank you for all you're doing. May our time of worship in song fellowship, word, and in Sunday school just be a, a great today. We ask in Christ's name for your blessing. Amen.
Good morning, brothers and sisters. How are you? I have a question for you, and I, I would ask that you filter this question not in a defensive manner, but in an offensive manner. Um, I ask the question um, not to imply if we do, but I ask this question uh, to demonstrate and communicate and put it in the front of our mind that we do. And that question I have for you is, do you love God? Do you love Christ? And, and I say that because so often I will come and, and I, will, I will come to church and, and it'll be out of religious duty or out of uh, just compliance with, with our Christian faith. Uh, but, but I am convinced that God desires our hearts and our love. And that is what he desires from us. Um, that, is, that can clearly be seen in scripture when Jesus Christ is asked, what is the greatest of commands? And he replies, to love your God with all your heart, all your mind, all your soul, and all your strength. And so I ask you, as a unified body, assembly of believers, to put the love of Christ in the front of your mind. And so when we enter into the worship, when we, when we go into the throne room, it is, it is that in which we bring as an offering to the Lord. Now, all that I've said is a, a mere man, imperfect in so many ways, but I'm going to ask the worship team to gather, and what I will declare to you next is from the word um, of God. This is perfect in every way. And so let us hear the voice of Christ in this. And so when we come boldly and confidently into the throne room of God to worship him this morning, uh, we, we hear this. Praise the Lord. This comes from Psalms 146. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. I will praise the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praises to my God while I have my being. Put not your trust in princes, in the Son of Man, in whom there is no salvation. When his breath departs, he returns to the earth. On that very day, his plans perish. Blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God, who made the heaven and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them, who keeps faith forever, who executes justice for the oppressed, who gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets the prisoners free. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the sojourners. He upholds the widow and the fatherless. By the way of the wicked, he brings the ruin. The Lord will reign forever, your God, O Zion, to all generation. Let us praise the Lord. Let us stand and let us sing out to the Holy Spirit, Spirit of the living God.
Brothers and sisters, we have this opportunity with this next song to actually verbally call out to the Lord, I love you, Lord. Let us sing, I love you, Lord. Let's continue with Give Me Jesus. may be seated.
Let us pray. Oh, Father God, we come before you. Father God, we believe, but help our unbelief. For your word says, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding, but in all your ways acknowledge you, Lord, and you will direct our path. Let us not be wise in our own eyes, but let us turn away from evil. Oh, Father God, if there is a Laodicean heart in any of us or in this congregation, I ask you, Lord, to remove that lukewarmness. For your word speaks clearly that if we think we have reached that point where we need no more help, or we are rich, or we, we are clothed properly, it is your word that tells us that we are naked, pitiable, wretched, and to come to the throne and ask you, Lord, and you say, purchase, purchase a life, purchase cloths of white. You, you tell us, Lord, to purchase the ointment to, to put on our eyes so that we see clearly. It says, Lord, to be zealous and to repent. It calls, says you are knocking. You are knocking at each and every one of our door. Every believer here, Lord, you are knocking. And you said, if we answer the door, you will come and you will dine with us and us with you. And I ask you, Lord, to put that spirit of repentance in our heart, a spirit of love, a devotion. Let us cast out the world and all that is trouble, and let us honor you. I pray, Lord, for this offering. I pray, Lord, that you will advance your kingdom with this, and that we would honor you the rest of our days. I pray these things in Jesus' name, and we cling to him, our Lord. Amen.
Good morning, everyone. <clears throat> Today's reading, reading is taken from the book of Acts, uh, chapter 4, uh, verses 23 through 37. Please rise if you can for the reading of the word of God. <clears throat> when they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly, in this city, there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed and Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness, while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with all boldness. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of the land or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that had belonged to him and brought, it, brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Amen. This next verse complements the song we're about to sing. Oh my, oh my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty. Psalms 104. Let us continue and sing, O Worship the King.
You may be seated. So we're, we are, as a church, in the midst of a pastoral transition. And as a part of that, a uh, number of discussion points and questions have arisen. And the last week and this week, I'm uh, addressing one of those. And that is really, what is the structure of a church? That is, how should a church function? How should it run? And what does the New Testament say about. So we are uh, discussing, examining three different forms of church government. Now what are those forms? One set of denominations argues from a few passages of scripture that the church should be governed in a top-down fashion. That is, that one man sits at the very top as essentially the representative of Christ on earth, and he holds the power of decision-making for all below, top-down, like a CEO of a company. Think of it like that. So what denominations, and we looked at this last week, are top-down in nature? Roman Catholicism, Anglicanism, Episcopalianism, and the Methodist denominations. So those four denominations are top-down. One man at the top holds the power and is able to make the decisions that affect each level. Now, that doesn't mean that there aren't decisions made at the lowest levels. Of course, there are little decisions, but nothing... Um, below that top man um, has any official power. He can always override anything. Okay, second form of church government. We also completed this as well, um, but just as a recap, uh, that is the representative form of church government. Our church is not top-down, and our church is not representative. Our church is the third one. But what is a representative form of church government? It is churches, those are churches that, are, that function very much like the United States does. Okay? The United States is not a democracy. In a loose way, you can describe it that, but it's not. It's a, um, it's a uh, republic. Okay? It's, a it's a republic that must obey its constitution, a constitutional republic. So the people, rep, the, the people elect their representatives and the representatives are the ones who hold the power to make decisions. It's not top-down because there's not one person at the top who dictates everything below. There are so many different, uh, different levels of authority within the representative form of government. So what are the two, especially around our area, uh, maybe I should add three in our area that um, are well-known and are representative 
forms of government within their denominations. Those would be Presbyterian, the Reformed churches, and the Lutherans. Okay, so they are uh, representative. Uh, they have a few verses in the scriptures. We looked at some of those last week. And now, finally, today, let's talk about the third form of church government. We did not look at this last week. We looked at the chart, but we didn't talk about it. And that this is what we want to finish with today. And this is a church government that is democratic. Okay, now what does that mean? That's what we want to answer. So essentially what I'm going to do today with the, uh, the um, time we have is look at primarily two things. One, I'm going to be arguing that I think from Scripture that a church should not just have one elder who rules the congregation. The word rules is the New Testament term that is, has oversight over the congregation, but that if the church is large enough, that there should be a plurality of elders who rule over the congregation, that is, have oversight over the congregation. So congregational form of government in some respects. How, what are those respects? We'll look at that. And then the second thing that I'm going to argue is that the democratic, that is a congregational form of government, is the one that is best supported by scriptural evidence. These are my opinions. I'm generous toward uh, friends who see it differently. Okay, so I want you to know that up front. Um, these aren't, this isn't a hill to die on, but I think when we look at the scriptures, you'll probably agree. You'll see what uh, they have to say, and uh, uh, this is what our Constitution says. So this is what our church is. All right, um, so what are the, the groups, the denom sometimes they aren't called denominations, but denominations are groups that have, that are well known in America that have this kind of government. Uh, Bible churches like ours are both of these plurality of elders as well as congregational form of government. Baptist churches, very much like that. Uh, the brethren churches, there are a couple of families in our church who are from a brethren background. And then the congregation, congregationalist uh, denomination is also uh, this. And that's not exclusive, but these are the four better known uh, groups that follow this form of church government. All right, so let's talk about uh, the two different forms or two different ways that democratic, that is congregational churches, have leadership. The first form, which is not what our church practices, has one elder. The second form has two or more elders. In our constitution, it is required to have at least three elders. Okay, so plurality of elders or a single elder. I've been a part of churches, a member of churches that have both forms of government. In other words, I've been a part of churches that had a, a senior pastor, single elder led. There may have been some assistant pastors, but that single elder 
um, is the one who is charged with oversight. Now, what, what ends up happening? In fact, what does usually their church constitutions not just allow but require? Here's what ends up happening in a single elder-led congregational form. There is a senior pastor who hires maybe assistants, fires them, church secretary, that kind of thing. Um, so he, he does the hiring and firing, but the deacons don't function the way I believe the New Testament prescribes. The deacons end up being the ruling elders. So there's the teaching elder, the senior pastor, and the deacons take on upon themselves or are vested by the church constitution with the responsibilities of eldership. This, I've been a part of churches and that is how it works. And I don't think that is scriptural. I think the deaconate is supposed to take care of the menial tasks of the church to free up the schedule of the elders to do the work of oversight to prepare for preaching, teaching, and so forth. So do you see the difference? Should there be one elder only or a plurality of elders? In churches where there's one elder only, the deacons end up functioning de facto or even explicitly as elders, and then there are no deacons of the church. So what happens is, often in the single elder-led churches, you'll end up with deacons sometimes pitted against the pastor. It's not uncommon. Uh, and so you'll have one deacon, maybe multiple deacons, who create problems for the pastor because they are functioning as elders and they aren't doing the deaking. The word deacon simply means servant in Greek. So they're not serving uh, and taking care of the tasks. They are, in fact, uh, ruling, exercising oversight. So I think that's problematic. It's not a hill to die on for me. I'm not going to be that bothered by it. But think that through. Uh, that's probably not. In fact, I'm going to argue that's not what the New Testament reveals. So what does the New Testament reveal? Uh, let's look at um, the... I'm going to do this. I'm going to take us to the case for plural elders first. So if you're looking at your notes, I'm going to jump down to the end. I think it might work well if I just take us directly to this, and then we'll look at congregational government next. So in your Bibles, turn to 1 Timothy chapter 5 and verse 17. What am I doing right now? I'm trying to argue that Church government should not have one elder only, but a plurality of elders. This is what our church has believed. This is what our church has in its constitution. And I'm going to argue that's the right, best way for a congregation to function. But I'm also going to be as honest and open with you as I possibly can. I'd rather be transparent and let you see it for yourselves so that it becomes your belief and not just Pastor Kurt's belief. So 
I've examined every single passage that I can find in the New Testament that describes elders. And I have found only one verse, but a very important verse, in the New Testament that, in my opinion, absolutely proves that a church should have more than one elder. Now, there are a lot of verses that talk about the elders in the plural that I think add support or weight to this. So it's not like there's only one verse that uh, is in the New Testament that teaches a plurality of elders. But if you were debating the single elder-led form of government with somebody who's convinced of that, I'm going to argue there's really only one verse in the whole New Testament that kind of is a slam dunk. And it's 1 Timothy 5.17. This is the only one that I think definitely, again, I don't want to be too strong, but I think definitely proves that a church, if, it, if it's large enough, should have, if there are enough qualified men, it should have a plurality of elders. So we'll start with this, and then we'll look at some of the other verses as well. Um, here it is. Paul, writing to Timothy in the pastoral epistles, giving Timothy advice about uh, what, how, how to... Um, examine men for eldership, for the deaconate, and on and on, how a church should run. He says here, 517, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially, specifically, those who labor in preaching and teaching. Why is that verse so powerful? Because what you, I believe, clearly have stated here is that there are multiple elders in the same church. There are some who are paid and some who are not. They're, they all have ruler qualities and must, and when we, say, when we use the word ruler, we tend to think of like a despotic king or something like that. That's not what's going on here, okay? Having oversight, they are, they are imbued with, uh, from Scripture with the power to make very important decisions, right? So there, in this text, are at least two, probably multiple elders in every single church because there are some who are not paid and others who are, all right? So this text, I think, shows us that there should be more than one elder in a church. But I don't want to end with that. So let's go back to Acts chapter 14, verses 21 through 23. Acts chapter 14, verse 21 says this. When they had preached the gospel, so this is Paul, he's been, he's in the first missionary journey, he's in the middle of what is today Turkey, the country of Turkey. Um, he has, uh, he and Barnabas have preached the gospel, as it says here in uh, 
Pisidian Antioch, they've uh, gone to Iconium, to Lystra, to Derbe, well, they're going to be. And, and now um, there is discussion about how the church should function. So when they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, so now there's a, a sizable congregation there, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch. So they're on their way back. And they are strengthening the souls of the disciples. So they're helping the people who have come to Christ grow in spiritual maturity. Further, it says, they were encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord to whom they had believed. So that, at face value, looks like what the apostle Paul and Barnabas did is as they were going back through these churches, they are helping the churches to select men to represent them as elders. It, it looks like there are multiple elders in every church. That's the, what I believe is the right interpretation. But I want to give you the other side of the argument, okay, just for full disclosure. It could mean that they appointed elders for each one of the congregations. See what I'm saying? Am I communicating? Are you following what I'm saying here? This text does, it's not, it's not an absolute guarantee that, they're, that they are appointing multiple elders in every church. It may be saying they appointed one elder, elder in each one of the churches, but that's not what the Greek probably means, and it's not the way that most likely it should be interpreted. So, Acts chapter 20, verse 17. Here's another passage that, again, talks about churches having a plurality of elders. Acts chapter 20, verse 17 says, Now from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. How many churches were there in Ephesus? Probably a lot of them. This is a big city. Paul has by now spent a lot of time in Ephesus. So there are probably many churches. It looks like what it's saying is that there are multiple elders in each one of these churches that Paul has called for, for uh, you know, kind of on his way to Jerusalem, a discussion time, prayer time. But it's also possible that there's one elder in each one of the churches. But I think, again, it's probably teaching us that there are multiple elders in each one of the churches. Turn to Philippians, chapter 1, verse 1. Philippians 1.1. 1, 1. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers 
and deacons, plural overseers and plural deacons, probably teaching us that each one of the churches in Philippi has multiple elders and multiple deacons. Now go to Titus chapter 1, verse 5. Titus 1 and verse 5. So again, we're in the pastoral epistles. Now it's not written to Timothy, as we read in, uh, at the beginning here. But now to Titus, Paul gives this advice. This is why I left you in Crete. This is chapter 1, verse 5. So that you might put what remained in order. Why does he say what remained? The churches in Crete were kind of a mess. The way they're described elsewhere um, shows that the Cretans were known for carnality, like the Corinthians. They were known for carnality. The churches have kind of been disintegrating after apostles had started them. And so the Apostle Paul has sent Titus to Crete to try to help these churches get back uh, into good working order. So this is why Paul sent them. And then it says, um, I left you in Crete so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. Multiple elders in every town. It sure looks like each one of the churches has multiple elders. Uh, Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17. <clears throat> Hebrews 13, 17. Here we read, we don't know who wrote Hebrews. There are a number of different opinions. Um, but whoever it was, is giving lots of very practical advice to the churches in the last few chapters. It's very doctrinal at the beginning, the bulk of the book, but then it turns very practical. And one of the pieces of practical advice has to do with uh, the church and their relationship to the elders. Here we read that the churches are to obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Every elder in a church will someday stand before Christ and give an account for how well he served in a leadership role. Finishing the verse, let them do this, let the elders, the leaders of the church do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Don't make the lives of the elders in the church difficult. Now look at the plural here, obey your leaders and submit to them. In each church, it looks very likely that the way this verse should be interpreted is, and I believe this is the way it should be interpreted, that each church is going to have multiple elders and the members of the church are responsible to listen to them. It doesn't mean that an elder is a dictator. It doesn't mean that they're always going to be right. Uh, we've already discussed that uh, some uh, a couple weeks ago, so I don't want to rehash all that. But Plurality of elders, 
looks like that's what this text is saying. Go to James chapter 5. James chapter 5 and verse 14. We're in the context that describes people when they get deathly ill. Is anyone among you, verse 13, is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. If anyone among you is sick, let him call for the elders of the church. Plural elder, single church. Sure looks like this is most likely, in fact, I would argue, is showing that churches should have multiple elders. And then the last verse that we'll look at is for, on this point is 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 1. Peter, writing to churches in northern Galatia, which today would be the middle center, northern part of the country of Turkey. He writes, I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you. All right, so elders, plural, probably showing that each church, if it's large enough, has multiple elders. Maybe the only verse that proves there should be a plurality of elders is 1 Timothy 5.17, but all of the rest give additional weight. Now let's talk about the case for congregationalism. Should church government be top-down? Should one man hold the power and authority to um, oversee all congregations from his central location. The individual local churches have no authority. They don't own their buildings. It's the top person who decides. Roman Catholicism, Anglicanism, Episcopalianism, Methodist. I don't think so, and I'm going to try to prove it. Should the church function like the government of the United States, that is representative in nature. I think the case for that is stronger than the top-down, but there are but a couple of verses that they could potentially use for support. We looked at those couple of verses last time. So that is, should a church elect their ruling elders and their teaching elder and then you send one teaching elder and one ruling elder to a body outside of the church that dictates to the church, has the power over the church that owns the church. And then further, those guys, you know, one of each of those goes up to the top. We talked about this last week. So the general assembly or the synod at the very top is a group of men that holds the power that tells the rest what to do, or sets the course of direction for what to do. Again, the local churches have no say in it other than simply appointing their elders who then in a representative form go up to the, the Congress in, in terms of America, you know, uh, House of Representatives and the Senate. That's what the Senate is. That's what that, that General Assembly is at the top of those denominations. Is that what the New Testament reveals? I don't think so. I don't think you can find any verse that actually shows that. 
There's not even any really discussion about a very, um, uh, you know, uh, stepped process of representation. I don't think you can find it anywhere in the New Testament. It's my opinion. I'm generous toward others who disagree, but I think that the case that I'm about to make, my opinion by far, holds the, 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 the vast amount of verses. Okay, And this is what our church constitution says. And this is what uh, we believe. And that is that the church has a democratic function to it. Okay? Now, it's not a pure democracy because the elders are elected and they give oversight, but there is accountability for the elders by vote from the congregation. What scriptures show this? What I'm going to do is start in the Gospel of Matthew, and we'll just, we're not going to look at, there's not a verse from every single book of the New Testament, but we'll start at the beginning of the New Testament and then sequentially look at additional passages. The first one of those uh, passages is in Matthew, specifically in chapter 18. And here it's talking in context about church discipline. So in Matthew 18, starting in verse 15, and we'll go down through verse 20, we see that the church has a role or a part to play in whether or not a member of the church or possibly multiple members are disciplined. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. So if someone in a church sins against another brother or sister, what are you to do? You immediately tell all your friends what they've done to you and get a party of people to attack them. No, definitely not. What are you supposed to do? Not gossip and tell people around you what he did to you or she did to you. You are to withhold your you know, confrontation uh, and, and uh, telling others, and you just go to that person directly. You don't, you don't go and tell the deacons. You don't go and tell the pastor. You just go. You, you keep it one-on-one. -on -one, you go to that person. Now, that's very hard to do, isn't it? I mean... That's hard to do. Confrontation is not easy for anybody. Maybe that, maybe I shouldn't say anybody. There might be a few people who don't mind confrontation. Most people don't like it. But if there's bitterness welling up in your heart, you need to go and uh, confront that brother or sister who has wronged you. See that? All right, so that's step one. But what if that brother or sister in the church refuses to repent? Then, verse 16, if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. What might happen? You might think you're wronged. The other person may have a really good case, and you go two or three others, and then all of a sudden, uh, they realize, now, wait a minute. You've, you have a lot of the... the you know, it takes two to tango here, and you've, uh, you, you've sinned too, and there's, a, there's multiple issues going on.
But what can also happen? That might be that that person really has wronged you, you take it to two or three others, and they agree, then that small group of people might include one of the elders, might include more than one of the elders, or maybe it includes a deacon, or maybe neither, but you, you go to that person who has wronged you with others and you confront them. Hopefully they repent. Usually that happens. Not always. Sometimes that person will leave the church over it. They absolutely won't repent. They just leave. But hopefully they'll repent. But if not, then what happens? Go to them one-on-one. Go to them with a small group. Third, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. Okay? And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. In other words, you put them out of the church. Continuing, truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. This, in context, is the church. Okay? And whatever you loose on earth should be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. See that? So two or three gathered. We're talking about even in the smallest of churches, the church has a responsibility potentially in church discipline if the person refuses to repent in the first two steps. Uh, Moving over to Acts chapter 6. Acts chapter 6. Again, I'm making the case for congregationalism. That is, we're looking at passages in the New Testament where it teaches that the congregation has a part in some decision that is made. It's not just the elders. They're probably leading it. They they should be leading it, but it's not just them. All right, so... How else, in other other words, in what other contexts do you see the whole congregation taking part and not just the elders? Acts chapter 6, we're talking about the selection of the very first deacons. Prior to Acts chapter 6, the church is brand new. Church started in Acts chapter 2. Thousands and thousands of people have been Uh, become believers now, and the church has grown large. At this point, early, early on, where, how are they meeting? This is clear from Acts 1 and Acts 2. The church is gathering in Jerusalem. It hasn't even expanded outside of Jerusalem yet. They're gathering thousands of them in Jerusalem on the Temple Mount area. But then they are separating into small groups where in houses they are celebrating the Lord's Supper after or as a part of eating a meal. Okay? So the church is growing. There aren't enough elders to take care of. They're just trying to take care of the big picture of things, and they need help with the deacon 
the serving, the basic needs of people. And so the elders, the apostles, the disciples, who are the leaders of the church, the overseers of the church, say, look, you know, congregation, group of people, thousands of them, we can't keep doing all this. We need help. And they created, and I believe this was, I know this was uh, Christ's will, they created a new office that had not existed in the months prior, which we now call, and the New Testament calls, the deacon. Again, the word deacon means the servant. Not the overseer, the servant. The word elder means overseer. The word deacon means servant. So, Acts chapter 6, verse 1. In these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. Translation, there are Jews who are very Greekish, and there are Jews who are very Hebrewish. And the Greekish Jews, those who had been Hellenized, those who had been affected more in the way they think by Greek ways of doing things, their, their cohort within the church was getting treated badly. The elders found out about it. They're like, oh, we don't have time for all this. So they say, keep going. We need to have oversight, but we need some others to come along and help us just with the daily tasks. So verse 2, the 12 apostles summoned the full number of the disciples and said, so there are thousands here. I mean, you can just imagine in that day, they're speaking loudly. I'm not going to repeat it, but there would have been a large gathering. And they say, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. We need to study the word. We need to be, we need to give ourselves. So to that, so that we can teach and preach and, and so, and exercise oversight. But there are massive demands on us in terms of the practical everyday needs of people. Verse 3, therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. The congregation is to discuss and select seven men who are full of the spirit. So a brief sideline, you do not want a deacon who is not a spirit-filled man. You're going to have problems. The deacons need to understand what their function is and not try to take authority from the elders. They're there to take or take the task away from the elders so the elders can do the other things. This is very important. Pick men of good reputation who are full of the spirit, who have a lot of wisdom. Once you've selected them, we'll appoint, meaning they'll lay their hands on them and pray for them. Okay? But who does the selecting? I mean, the apostles are a part of it, but it's the congregation that does that. See that? So these are proofs for congregationalism. That is for a, a, a kind of a semi-form of democratic 
way of oversight of the church, or not of oversight, but of, of the way the church functions. All right, Acts chapter 11. Go to Acts 11, verse 22. Acts chapter 11, verse 22. So the, by now, we're a few chapters later, the um, church is no longer just in Jerusalem. It's expanding into Judea. It's not in the uttermost parts of the earth yet, but the church has gotten up to the city of Antioch. God, through uh, Deacon Philip, has brought the gospel there. Many have been saved. And now there is a strong church in Antioch. In fact, that church grows to be a very influential one and the first missionary sending church, uh, directly sending out missionaries. Okay, so very important church. What is, uh, uh, why does this particular verse matter? Go down to verse, or this passage matter. Verse 22. The report of this, what is this, came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. Okay, so let's back up. Verse 19, those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen, who was martyred in Jerusalem, those who were persecuted, they scattered. They left Jerusalem, left everything to save their lives, and traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. So they're not, at the first, even reaching out to Gentiles. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who, on coming to Antioch, spoke to the Hellenists, also preaching the Lord Jesus. So some began to reach uh, those who were not uh, strictly Jewish. And the hand of the Lord was with them as they were preaching the gospel to the Hellenists. And a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this went south from Antioch to Jerusalem. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem and they, the church, sent Barnabas to Antioch. Barnabas to help them kind of sort through things, okay? Because there were a lot of issues going on, and we won't take the time to look at those or talk about those, but the church selected uh, a man and sent Barnabas down there. Now, Acts 15, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pass over that. I'm not gonna, we're not going to read that whole text, but I want to remind us of something regarding Acts 15, the main passage that the top-down forms of church government use and the main passage that the representative forms of government, Presbyterian, Lutheran, uh, Reformed churches, the main text they use is also Acts 15. Why? Because there are apostles there, Ultimately, James is the spokesman. He's the leader of the, the, the preaching pastor, the recognized um, uh, like lead elder among the, ch the, the church in Jerusalem in Acts 15. So 
Acts 15 is the passage for the first form of church government and the second form of church government. Should that then be the way, in other words, is this the right interpretation of Acts 15? Should there be top-down or should there be representative form of church government? I'm not going to take us through the whole passage, but I do want to read a couple of select verses here to show you that even in Acts 15, it's not top-down and it's not representative like they're trying to argue. So Acts chapter 15 Verses 2 and 3 say this. Paul and Barnabas were, and I quote, appointed, you see it, by the church. They were not appointed by James. They were not appointed by the elders. They were not appointed by deacons. They weren't appointed by somebody Above and beyond the church, they were appointed by the church. That verse alone would make me begin to doubt that this passage should be used to prove top-down or representative. But it doesn't end there. Verse 4, it says the church, along with the apostles and elders, welcomed Barnabas and Paul. In verse 12, it says, all the assembly of the church at Jerusalem listened to Paul and Barnabas. In other words, this was not a closed door affair. Paul and Barnabas come to discuss very difficult matters in the early formation of the churches in that region and who Here's the report. You might expect, in fact, you would expect, if it were top-down or representative, Paul and Barnabas, the others who are, who are a part of this, they would have gone to the elders. Or they would have gone to some assembly beyond that. But you know what? That's not what you see. You actually see that all the assembly hears this report. In verse 22, we see that this shows that, and I quote, the apostles and the elders with the whole church chose men to send with Paul and Barnabas back to Antioch in order to help. So again, the whole church, not just apostles, not just elders, the whole church has a part in the decision on who goes. Uh, chapter 15, verse 30 shows that the letter was read not to the bishop, not to the elders only, not to a presbytery, but to, I quote, the congregation in Antioch. So throughout this whole thing, what we're seeing is that there's no hierarchy. There's no body above the, outside of the congregation, above the congregation. Not even the, the apostles don't even function that way. Each part of this chapter has the congregation, the assembly, the congregation helping, taking a part in what's happening. So to, since this is the passage to use for the top down and the representative, I'm going to argue that embedded in the very passage is a serious problem for their argument. 
Makes sense. All right. Um, 1 Corinthians chapter 5 in verse 4. 1 Corinthians 5, verse 4. So here we have a really grotesque church discipline situation. And when Paul hears about a son having sexual relations with his stepmother, it's just, in, in this chapter it even says, Unsaved people don't even do this. And this is happening inside of the church. So it's just one situation. It's only one person, but it's, it's grotesque. So when Paul hears about it, he writes, one of the reasons he writes 1 Corinthians is to deal with us. Who is it that he's addressing? It's not a bishop. It's not the elders Paul is, who Paul's upset with. It says specifically... In chapter 5, verse 4, when you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Again, not the elders who are involved only in, in the church discipline, but the you is referring to the assembled, the church. Uh, chapter 6, just one chapter over here, still in 1 Corinthians, uh, we see that there are two Christians who have a dispute. They're in the same church, they have a dispute, and there's no, nothing's ever been said about how to deal with this kind of like a financial type of dispute in the church. In other words, you, it's not like one person is wrong the other. Both people are arguing and have a point. So when two have a dispute, who do they take it to? They don't take it to the secular courts. Paul spells that out. And for that matter, it says right here that they don't take it to a bishop. They don't take it to elders. They don't take it to a presbytery. It says uh, chapter 6, verse 1, when one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to the law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? The answer is no. Now go to verse 4. So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? And in, as you continue to read, it looks like it's the church, not just the elders. Now, this one's a weaker passage. It's not as strong as the earlier ones, but this one looks like it's the entire church, again, that has to deal with it. I've got two more passages. The first one is in 1 Corinthians 16. And this has to do with money. 1 Corinthians 16, verse 3, a, a um, collection has been taken up in churches that are in the Greek-speaking world for believers in Jerusalem who are under very severe persecution by uh, Hebrew Jewish religious leaders who have rejected Christ. So they really need some financial help. So Paul is uh, helping uh, trying to get some money together to help 
these Jewish believers. And it says, verse 3, Paul writing to the Corinthians, When I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. So who is the one or what group of people are the ones who decide who will accredit, that is, look over, have like a treasurer function, have, a, have an accountability function over the money? Well, the answer is back in verse 1. Concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. The churches, the saints, the churches, uh, the saints are the ones in need in Jerusalem, the churches are the ones who are going to help, and the churches are the ones who accredit, who, who would select and accredit. And then finally in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, This will be the last passage we'll look at today, 2 Corinthians chapter 2. Paul addresses once again another church discipline situation. So this is the third church discipline situation here. He addresses a church discipline problem. Notice that it is not a bishop, it's not the group of elders, it's not a presbytery who decides the punishment. In fact, it is the church, democratically, that decides the punishment. Note the wording in chapter 2, verse 6. I'm actually going to go back to verse 1 and then note the wording in verse 6. For I made up my mind not to make another painful visit to you. For if I cause you pain... Who is there to make me glad but the one whom I have pained? And I wrote as I did so that when I came, I might not suffer pain from those who should have made me rejoice. I realize um, not that long ago I preached through this passage. So if you were awake, you, you remember probably at least some of this and it sounds familiar to you. Let's keep going. For I felt sure all of you that were, I'm sorry, that my, um, uh, for I felt sure of all of you that my joy would be the joy of you all. For I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love I have for you. Now, if anyone has caused pain, he has caused it not to me, well, in some measure, yes, not to put it too severely to all of you. Yeah, he's hurt me, yes, but really the problem is he's hurting you, the church. And we know, we've talked a lot about what was going on in Corinth here in 2 Corinthians. I mean, they ran Paul out of the church. <laughs> so there's some really difficult situation, uh, situations happening. The, the experience right now of the church, it's a mess. And there are very deeply problematic people who are part of the church. Some of them are even unbelievers. So how does Paul teach that 
the church should deal with the people who, yeah, they're bothering me, but really the big deal is not that they're bothering me, it's that they're creating problems for you. How do you deal with them? Verse 6, for such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. All right, so there are different ways to interpret it, but I think the simplest reading is the punishment by the majority. Again, like Matthew 5, etc., it's probably the church being involved uh, in the situation of church discipline. All right, so how should a church function? We want to be gracious toward people who see church government differently. Why? Because there really isn't one single passage in the New Testament that just says, this is how the church should function. (laughs) It must function like this. You don't have a passage like that. But you have a lot of different texts that build a case, I think, for one, a plurality of elders, not just a single elder, and then two, for the congregation to have a part in um, selecting who their elders and deacons are, in um, uh, church discipline, and in financial matters. They don't rule, the congregation doesn't rule themselves. They don't have oversight over themselves. The elders function like that. So don't think of it as a pure democracy where, um, where the elders really don't truly have leadership. Some, some churches with plurality of elders function like that, but that's a really unhealthy church. It's a church that's sick, that doesn't understand how it should function. You should obey your elders. Unless they tell you something wrong or unless they're sinning. Obey them. Submit to them. Even when you disagree about something, if it's small, let it go. Is what, don't create problems for them. Right. But there is a check and balance to it. There is a congregational vote. Financial, church discipline, and uh, from the standpoint of the selection. Okay? Um, what we're going to do now is have the elders... Brad and John come up, and the deacons, Dan and Russ, come up, and I'm going to lead us as a congregation in a prayer of dedication, asking the Lord to help us all um, in the executing of the responsibilities that each of us has. I am, and this is not me embellishing, this isn't me like, you know, just trying to be nice. This is me with full sincerity, um, with absolutely no duplicity in my heart. I, I am going to praise God and thank the Lord for the men whom you have selected. I believe that Brad and John are not just elder qualified, but are seriously, uh, um, they're serious about their responsibilities. I've already, in the brief time that John has uh, been serving it as, as an elder, I've already seen him go way out of his way in a couple of instances uh, for 
eldership care over our church. You have selected two God. We have had so many godly men in the past. You've selected two very godly men who really are going to be good shepherds for you this year. So we're going to pray for them, but you've likewise selected two, I'm going to just say it, amazing deacons. And I mean it. I really sincerely mean these are men who are full of the Spirit, Acts chapter 6, who know how to serve. Dan has an incredible business mind, very good uh, with things like that, and also making decisions and and checks and balance. Good, good uh, mind for that. Russ, wow, You, you couldn't find a deacon who is more involved in the everyday tasks of the church than Russ. I mean, they moved to Plymouth so they could be just a couple of blocks away so he can always be here constantly. The attention to detail that he has given in the uh, past few years since he's been selected as a deacon is truly amazing. I want to commend you as a church for the men whom you've selected. I want to thank the Lord for providing men like this. And we want to pray now for all of us elders and deacons uh, for this year that God would um, guide us in our tasks. Lord, as a congregation, we come to you knowing that whatever you say in your word, we want to obey. We, there, there sometimes are disagreements about how to interpret a particular text, and we want to be generous and gracious toward those who disagree on, on things that are not of a first order. But, Lord, at the same time, we we do believe what we believe. Our Constitution is quite clear on the things we've discussed today. And we want to uh, submit to the Chief Shepherd, our Lord Jesus, in every way. Further, Father, we want to thank you for for the fact that you have placed within our assembly men like this who stand before us. We want to pray for Brad and John and myself too that you will allow us to first walk in the Spirit daily, to be men who are first and foremost um, following hard after your Son, who are less concerned about ourselves and more concerned about others, who are uh, not just able to but willing to go out of our ways to shepherd the flock that you have given, this wonderful group of believers. So help us to exercise oversight in a loving, not domineering way. Help us to rule the church in the right sense of that term, not the wrong sense of that term. And Lord, we pray that the people of the church, the members and the attenders in our church, will submit in the right way. Not if there's abuse, but submit properly uh, to the guidance and the oversight that is given. We pray that you'll especially help us as elders all this year in uh, terms of the transition that is in, in process that 
each month and each step will be led by you. And then we think of our deacons. Two deacons who definitely love you. Perfect? No, none of us is. But who love you, who wish to serve, who are gifted at serving, and who are willing to expend a lot of time in service. So we pray for Russ and for Dan that you will uh, bring to their attention anything that must be done or should, could be done. Uh, help them to, to uh, make decisions, bring it to the leadership discussion. Lord, we pray that um, uh, ultimately uh, the, the uh, uh, decisions can be made that will please you. Uh, and then we pray that each time we have a congregational meeting that we will always be, all of us, men and women who are in the spirit all the time, and especially in those meetings, that, um, that when decisions for who will be elder and deacon or uh, financial decisions or in a, the rarer event where church discipline is necessary, that we will um, uh, be wise in our deportment. Uh, and Lord, uh, the money that you give to this church, we never beg, we don't even talk about it, but the money that you give to this church is very important. We are stewards, and we pray that our stewardship would be wise. So as we conclude this prayer, Lord, and dismiss to go down to snack time, we just pray that our fellowship would continue to be sweet today and that our time in Sunday school will be blessed. We ask in Christ's name. Amen. All right, you're dismissed. Uh, we'll see you downstairs. Don't forget about the wonderful treats. Eat them all up so I don't have to. <laughs>